Hi, this is Jim Lyon. You're listening to Viewpoint. With me today, Kimberly Majeski. How are you, Kimberly? I'm well, Jim. How are you? I'm so fine and always fine when I see you in the studio because you are full of life and and brain and heart. Oh, my I mean, goodness. You're the whole thing. This and is why I come back us. again and again. Yes. <laughs> well, you're all that and more. And thanks for joining us. And I know that you have a little boy. I do. How old is Max now? He is four years old. And with four-year-old boys at the house, I'm going to guess there are a few like popular films and things that are just like, you know, on play often in your Indeed. Home. So how about that film, The Incredibles? Have you ever seen that? Yes, a million or two times, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not to overstate it, a million or two times, but so many times you've lost count. That's right. And it's an animated feature. It comes out of the Disney storehouse, and it talks about these characters who are kind of like superheroes, mm-hmm. and they're, they're incredibles because they do things that we don't think are possible. But wait a minute, Kimberly. In real life and in real history, there are people who are incredibles too. That's true. And we're starting a new series today on Viewpoint that's going to talk about some of those incredibles in the early centuries of the Christian era that actually turned the world upside down. No superhero could have done more. Kimberly, you and I have already mentioned the Incredibles today, animated characters who are superheroes, who are able to do things beyond ordinary capacity, it Mm -hmm. seems. And uh, they're fun little films for kids and Mm -hmm. sometimes moms and dads who watch alongside. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But there are in life also some Incredibles. And uh, I know you love history. I do. I know that you teach uh, at a college level. You teach both undergraduate and graduate level courses Mm -hmm. in theology and uh, and in that context, are always wrestling with history, too. And there are some Incredibles in history. Right. And there are some Incredibles who write about history. (laughs) One of those guys is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, Dr. Bart Ehrman. And you've used some of his content in your coursework, I think. I have. I really respect him as an historian um, because of his sort of non-biased approach to the material. So, I mean, this is a guy, this Bart Ehrman. Mm -hmm. He's at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Mm -hmm. Hill, I believe. Go Tar Heels. And he... Mm -hmm. He comes from a background of deep evangelical faith, and he's kind of moved out of that. So he, he today describes himself as an agnostic atheist. Mm-hmm. And it's a strange juxtaposition of terms, but <laughs> in his mind, it kind of gives him a little room to maneuver, I think. He's not altogether an atheist, absolutely. He right. still has some openness to other ideas and right. concepts, but he's no voice for evangelical or orthodox Christianity. Mm -hmm. But in that context, he is an historian, legit. Mm -hmm. And he has done great work in evaluating history, analyzing history, aggregating historical facts to help us understand from where we have come. That's so important as we think about where we're going. And he's issued a new book, uh, actually new, it's just in the last year, and it's called The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Took Over the World Mm -hmm. and uh, Turned the World Upside Down, Swept the World. And this is a study of Christianity. How is it possible that this little band of people, and if we just went to the original sources, at best, maybe 120 people at the dawn of Christianity. Right. <laughs> How did that little group, that band, reproduce itself so dramatically that in time, and in a relatively short time by historic measure, it took over the whole world? It, it took over the empire. It, it upended the established order that had for millennia been the norm. How is that possible? These are incredibles. These are, these are incredibles. These are important questions. And I will say the Protestant church, we haven't done a really good job of talking about that early history 
after the close of the canon of the Bible and we go into sort of these early years, there, there are a lot of questions unanswered about how the movement sort of takes shape and lifts into this um, world-changing kind of uh, phenomena. And that's really Bart Ehrman's wheelhouse. He really wants to get in there and talk about how things get solidified and how this story of this resurrection catches fire and changes the world. And I think that there are basically two popular approaches to answering the questions of how did that happen. One is from people who are of faith, who have a deep faith in in the story of the early church and the story we still own as followers of Jesus, the story of a people who believe in the resurrection of the dead and Jesus being the first of those. We would say, well, it was divine appointment. It's miraculous. It was providence uh, that compelled this, that inevitably caused this to occur, even though the obstacles by human measure were, were too grave to overcome heaven intervened and made it possible. And I would say, still, yes, there's obviously for me as a man of faith, there is a supernatural component to that course of history. But on the other hand, for people who don't have faith, they tend to look at these events and say, well, it's just, it's the ordinary outcome of political events that occurred when a Roman emperor named Constantine came into power and then began to embrace Christianity. His mother became a Christian first, and Mm -hmm. pretty soon he's opening the door to Christians in his empire. And it was this kind of official screen and shade that inevitably caused people to be Christian. It really has nothing to do with God. There doesn't even have to be a God for that to be explained. It's just the political machinations of the time and has brought us to this place and so on and so forth. That's right. What Ehrman wants to say is he wants to look before Constantine, those 300 years of persecution, of hardship, of um, the fires of being new, and talk about how these people with this singular belief thrived and expanded. And Ehrman is not buying either the idea that God made it happen because he is not interpreting history through a supernatural lens. So at both of these popular answers to the question, how did these early Christians turn the world upside down? He's not buying any of the popular responses to that. Correct. He thinks in the historic record, there are other reasons that make these outcomes plausible, and obviously they occurred. And first up today, we want to talk about the first in his list of five things he thinks explains how this happened, how these early Christians became Incredibles, Mm -hmm. and in a way that nobody could have imagined took the world over. And the first of those reasons is, strangely, I thought when I was reading it, the exclusivity of Jesus. He feels like that message of the early church that everybody has to make a choice, essentially pushing people into, you have to make a choice, you can't have it all There's a menu of options before Mm -hmm. you, but for you to actually move forward in life in this world and the world to come, you have to make a choice. And that was a revolutionary concept. When we come back, Kimberly, let's talk a little bit about why that matters and not just kind of an esoteric conversation, but our world today actually is increasingly like the world of Rome in which the church was first born. And the questions of exclusivity are today as relevant as they were then As you listen to our broadcast today, you may have some questions that come to mind that you'd like to ask us. Maybe you have a comment you want to share, or maybe even you just want to draw us into your own life journey and ask us to pray with you. 
whatever is on your heart, we want you to know your voice matters. And we have a toll-free number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No matter where you are listening to this broadcast, write this down, 1-800-757-VIEW. That's 1-800-757-8439. We're by the phone. A live voice will pick it up. A member of our team will be in touch. I promise. Kimberly, as we're thinking about the first century of the Christian era, and Mm -hmm. we're thinking about not just the first century, but the second and third also, these early years of the Christian church and how they turned a world upside down. They were in a a world, actually, that's increasingly familiar to us uh, in a way because we're, we're moving in our civilization towards a replica of what it was in ancient Rome, I think, at mm-hmm. so many levels. Mm-hmm. And in ancient Rome, the world was framed by a completely different template. Mm-hmm. People who believed there was a supernatural existence, that there was a spiritual realm, they, they got that. Just like today, people are generally open to spirituality when it's defined as there's something more than just my material flesh or there's some kind of unseen reality. The debates comes about what that is and how we should intersect with it. But in Rome, they had that also. But they also had many, many idols, we say. And when we use the word idol today, people imagine an Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom movie (laughs) or something like that. But, But still in our world today, there are people in broad faith categories that actually worship idols that are made by human hands. That's not altogether prevalent in the Western world, but other parts of the world, that's quite normative. The Romans had a more grandiose, I think, scope of that with with a certain pantheon, a collection, a, a family of gods, so to speak, and they were on every corner and everybody who lived in the Roman world, that world that circled the Mediterranean and beyond, uh, they just took that for granted, that there are all these gods out there and uh, I might have a favorite, but I can worship this one and that one. I mean, there was not a requirement to choose anything. You just were able to just incorporate everything, embrace everything. It was a a very superstitious uh, people, the early Romans. Uh, they were, you know, very interested in omens and uh, signs and wonders and things that they would see. They would, um, very important to them would be dreams and visions that they would have. And you're right, they had sort of a god that they worshipped for every little thing and um, a god who would be honored um, over every um, capacity of their life. So a god for, you know, the fields, a god for fertility, a god for the household. And, and, And they were living their lives in supplication to these gods who were sort of toying with them at all times. They're a little bit arbitrary and capricious, these gods. But I think the fundamental thing that I read in Ehrman's book that made me think of our present day is just this capacity to have have it all. Uh, I'm not in a world in ancient Rome where I have to make choices really Mm -hmm. about things. Uh, I can accept that you believe this and my neighbor believes that, that you favor this God and my neighbor favors that one. I want to honor both. I want to cover all my bases, so I'm going to make sure I go to some ritual sacrifice at 10 temples instead Mm -hmm. of just one or two. And the idea that I would be put in a position where I'd have to make a choice that, no, I can't have it all, that I have to actually differentiate and decide, am I going to follow in this one way, Mm -hmm. was in ancient Rome quite novel. But actually today, Kimberly, it seems increasingly novel again, because we're moving into a world and a time where there's a lot of embrace of just everything. 
how many times do we hear or watch in the media this idea that, well, it doesn't really matter what you think, or you don't really have to make any choices, or what's right for you may be right for you, but not for me, that, that the world is a full palette, a menu, a buffet of different paths and courses and understandings, and I can just embrace all of them. And what I'm suggesting here is not that you have to make a choice and, and denigrate somebody else. It's just that uh, I could be respectful of your right to believe whatever you want to believe. Right. But the idea that I could choose one path, would that simplify my life? Is there something drawing about that? Is there something magnetic about that? There certainly was in the early centuries of the Christian era. I think, too, another parallel that we can make is, is the idolatry. And we might not have, you know, things that we call gods that we worship, but we have gods that we worship. Those things like financial success or, you know, wealth or popularity or influence, position, power. I mean, those are things in our context in the West that are very much pursued and um, sought after, and will set aside our beliefs <laughs> to pursue those things, because those are the things we're going after. And we falsely believe we can set aside the beliefs that we have, the call to follow Jesus, life in the kingdom, per- to pursue those things. Exactly. So I can honor Jesus and say he's Lord and go to a house of worship on Sundays, for instance, but in our culture, that sometimes is divorced from ordinary life. Right. So I can, I can honor Jesus as a God on Sunday, for instance, but I don't necessarily have to conform my sexual conduct to the value frame that Jesus has called me to own. Or I don't have to do my business in the way that he, in his value uh, frame, has called me to do it and so on. So and, and in that respect, again, we're trying to have it all, aren't we? Mm. But that's not the Jesus that the first century and early century church understood. And it's not the Jesus still displayed in the scripture. And that's the draw. Wow. The the all-encompassing nature of choosing Jesus as Lord. And when I do that, it's not just about acknowledging Jesus is above all other gods or all other ambitions or pursuits. It's that it then begins to inform my whole life. It's not just compartmentalized. It's a sweeping transformation of everything in my life and the way in which I experience life. That is what drew people in the early centuries. And I'm here to say, I think that still has power to draw. In a world where we're tempted sometimes to think we can have it all. I can follow this on one day and follow that on the mm-hmm. next day. There's really no absolute uh, call in my life. I can worship this and worship that. I can just pull it all together. That's a lot like the ancient world was. Right. And then this group of people walked onto the stage and said, no, 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 it's not like that. <laughs> uh, we're, we're followers of Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, that means we're not following any other gods. We're not going to have other ambitions. Every choice we make in life, the way we experience our relationships, the way we order our houses, our businesses, our relationships, our friendships, our marriage, our homes, our parenting, all of that's going to be defined by this worship of one single master, God, Jesus. And in the early years of the Christian era, that was a hugely compelling magnet. And I'm here to say, I think that still is in our world where you're tempted and I'm tempted to go in a hundred different directions. And while every now and then I wish 
man, why can't I do that too? I always end my day realizing, wow, there's something empowering and fulfilling in knowing that I'm following one God, Jesus. But when I say following one God, Kimberly, there are other faith systems that talk about that exclusivity too, aren't there? I mean, this is not unique to Christianity today. It was back in the early Roman age, Mm -hmm. but today there are some other draws where you could say, well, I'm just going to follow one particular religion. Right. You can um, trace monotheistic or, you know, one God religions back to um, the dawn of Abraham and the Jewish people, later the Muslim movement that would uh, sort of branch off from that. And so um, we're connected to those sort of other faith uh, beginnings and stories for sure. But we then are faced with a choice because all of them are mutually exclusive. Because when you get to exclusivity, (laughs) that means, well, there's kind of just one choice to make. And so all of us have to wrestle with what choice do I make? What is the object of my worship? Who is it that should really hold my allegiance? And if I want to make that choice, who then do I focus on? And that brings me to Jesus. Because as I've thought through my life and traveled the world extensively, and I've had so much respect for so many people who have different faith systems than I do, I can see the beauty and the value of what they have embraced. But at the end of the day, when I look at their founders or the persons that they actually see as their object of worship, or maybe who they consider to be their interlocutor, their single way forward, I just always come back to Jesus because he stands head and shoulders above the crowd, it seems to me. There's just nothing like him. Now, let's start here. The the story of Jesus, the book of Jesus, the New Testament, is very clear that Jesus is the one way. And there are several passages in the New Testament that that assert this. You can just say, that's nonsense, I'm not buying it. But we can't deny that it's what it claims, it's what it says. So for instance, in John chapter 14, Jesus is quoted and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. In other words, that's, that's pretty exclusive. It's pretty sweeping. Yeah, I'm thinking of 1 Timothy uh, 2.5. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Again, that's the Apostle Paul talking. He makes the choice. There's one mediator between God and humankind, and that is Jesus. There, there, isn't, there aren't two. There aren't five. It's one. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, and this is the Apostle John writing. He was well acquainted with Jesus. And he kind of sums things up this way. He said, whoever has the Son, Jesus has life. And whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. Again, it's, it's very exclusive. Well, then why is Jesus all that? I, I get that that's what the New Testament's saying, but what are the things about Jesus that might persuade me? And imagining myself back in the first century, of the Christian era, or even today in the 21st century of the Christian era, what is it about Jesus that makes him better than some of those other options? I think this is so important, Jim, because my rebellious heart could read these texts and say, "What? don't tell me, right? Don't tell me what to believe. What is compelling for me, and I think scores of millions of billions of people like me, is the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the love of Jesus. And that's what's compelling. That's what is attractive about Jesus. Jesus is different. 
because Jesus called us to live a different way. Um, Jesus called us to walk in a way that served others, that benefited others, that served the poor, that um, took care of widows and aliens. Of course, this was all handed down from um, the Jewish belief, and sort of he's living that out. But Jesus will even then call pious Jews into a, a more devoted life and living out of that. I'm acquainted with a guy who grew up in Jordan. He had heard of Jesus, but he didn't really follow Jesus or really know that much about Jesus because his focus was on the prophet Muhammad. That was the culture that had raised him. And he came to a point where he began to raise questions about that. He wasn't sure, as all of us do. As we, if we're right. authentic, it doesn't matter how you're raised. Part of the you, process. You come to a moment where you just challenge what you've been told. You just Is that really true? You may come back around and embrace it, or you may discard it. But in his case, he was asking the questions. He didn't find good answers, and he didn't know what to do. And his testimony to me was, I, he had some friends, young guys who are also Islamic, but he trusted them where he could ask questions freely. And he was telling them, you know, I just, I'm not buying this. It just is not fitting for me. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, why don't you read up about that Jesus guy? Because there's a lot of people in the world that think that's the answer. But none of them really knew about Jesus. He went and tried to find a Bible. He couldn't because nobody had a Bible in his town. He lives in the city in Jordan and nobody had a Bible. There was a church there. He went to the church and the the pastor was afraid to give him a Bible because he didn't want to be caught in the crosshairs of evangelization right. in a culture that did not welcome that kind of free exchange of ideas. In the end, he said, he began to Google it up. He just went online to find out, what does that book about Jesus say? And he found himself reading the Sermon on the Mount. This mm -hmm. is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Yep. He said he was reading it, and immediately he began to realize, this is not like anything I've ever heard before. And he said when he got to the line where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is what we sometimes call the Magna Carta of the kingdom of right. God. You know, it, It's kind of the charter document. This is how the rules and regs of following Jesus are. And he's reading it, and his heart is stirred, and he's finding life in it. And then he got to this part where Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that justice is defined by, I will take from you what you took from me, this kind of equity right. justice. He said, Jesus was quoted there. And he said, yeah, that's what I've heard. That's how I live. That's That makes sense. But then he said, I give you something new. Mm -hmm. Love those who persecute you. Right. You know, Give to those who have taken from you. And he said, as he got that far into the words of Jesus, he said it was just like his heart became alive and he realized these have to be the words of God because no person could invent this. No person could actually get here on their own. No, this is divine. Mm -hmm. And it was that thing, that, that reading of the actual words of Jesus, which he then realized, this stands alone. It's different from everything else. And that, he said, in that moment, he cried out to God and said, I want this Jesus. Our prayer for you is today, you'll start on the journey and thirst for more. How do you start? Right now with us, pray. Our Father, we're thankful that Jesus has come into this world and that he has disclosed you to us, that when we see Jesus, we see you, that he's the exact representation of you in human form. And we're thankful, Lord, that he lives and how his story is so compelling. It is so singular. It is exclusive. And we're thankful for his words, his teaching, his life, and what he calls out of us, and that he is a real living presence and can come alongside right now. For everyone who is joining us in this prayer, in this moment, we ask that we'll open their eyes Open their eyes to the truth of Jesus. Open their eyes in the scripture and in conversation 
and in their hearts, supernaturally. Work in them, Lord, that they might become incredibly changed and find life. Thank you, Lord, for inviting us into your company. Through Jesus Christ the Lord, it is in his name we pray. Amen. We're so glad that you joined us today on Viewpoint. And we, we know that you may have questions and you're wondering what to do next. So here's the deal. Give us a call, send us an email, send us a letter. How do you call? Toll free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-757-8439. We're right by the phone. But Kimberly, if somebody wanted to go online, where would they find us? Yeah, you can find us online at cbhviewpoint.org. Send us a message and we'll be happy to respond. Or just address a letter to me, Jim Lyon, Viewpoint, Post Office Box 2420, Anderson, Indiana, 46018, USA. But whether you call us up, check us out online, or use the post, please let us hear from you. Today, as every day, we want to help you see your world from heaven's view. And we hope you'll join us again next week when we do the same, and we unpack a little bit more of Ehrman's theories about why the early Christians were Incredibles who turned the world upside down. But until then, this is Jim Lyon for the whole Viewpoint team and for our co-host, Kimberly Majeski. Thanks for joining us. We hope you'll be with us again next week. Godspeed.